Hi, I'm Dan Fermat, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Thursday, October 22nd. Weekly jobless claims are down, home sales and home prices are up, and we're focused on the quick rise and steep fall of Quibi. Quibi. Okay, where to start? Probably with what it is or was, because the lack of consumer interest became a big part of the problem. Quibi was basically the brainchild of Jeffrey Katzenberg, the one-time head of Disney Studios and DreamWorks. It was a video streaming app for scripted content, but instead of 30-minute or hour-long programs, each episode would be a maximum of 10 minutes, short form, with Katzenberg believing it could become the video version of a Dan Brown novel, quick, addictive chapters, preferably with cliffhangers. Katzenberg then hired former eBay and HP CEO Meg Whitman to lead Quibi, and raised nearly $2 billion to hire talent. He then set an April 2020 launch date, which proved to be going right into the pandemic, even though Quibi was primarily designed for an on-the-go audience. The response from audiences? Underwhelming. They didn't connect with the shows. Many didn't even know the shows existed due to some inexplicably terrible decisions about not allowing things like social sharing or screenshots. It also didn't help internally that Katzenberg and Whitman, who'd known each other for decades, rarely saw eye to eye. So now Quibi is shutting down, with Meg Whitman telling this to CNBC. The honorable thing to do is to return money to shareholders when we knew this was not going to have a path forward as a viable standalone business. Katzenberg was also on that CNBC interview, taking responsibility for the failure. When asked if he'd temper an earlier statement in which he blamed the pandemic for Quibi's flop, he said this. 100%. It's not fair. In 15 seconds, we will go deeper on Quibi with Jason Hershorn, CEO of Redef, one of the best media and Hollywood newsletters out there. But first, this. We're joined now by Redef CEO and veteran media executive Jason Hershorn. So Jason, Quibi yesterday announces that it is ceasing operations. When that news comes across your phone, what was your initial reaction? Well, I knew early only because a lot of the executives there are friends of mine. So I just want to put that out there in case there's any calls for bias in here. I don't take any pleasure when these things happen. And certainly there's been a lot of press out there. I thought it was someone who took a big swing or a bunch of people that took a big swing at something. And it was an idea that was fraught with issues. But the execution in terms of programming and product was something that I was impressed by. It seemed that even pre-launch, Quibi was a bit of a pinata, particularly among the tech press, but also even seemed a bunch of folks in Hollywood. Why do you think that was? These are all gut feelings for me, so I'll just give you my take on them. I think Quibi didn't do itself any favors by the amount of media they did before the launch. So I'm not talking about the weeks before the launch. I'm talking about a two-year stint where they were on the covers of magazines and at conferences, and there wasn't a lot to show or to explain. And there certainly had been failures in this area by telcos and others trying to do short-form premium video. I think that was a big part of it. There is a schadenfreude, you know, with the tech press as it relates to new media companies. I don't think it's any sort of cabal or conspiracy, but the reality is if you look at the press, it was pretty tough, though if you put yourself out there, you got to be able to be okay with it. And then the media world, you know, Hollywood's a town of creativity, but it's also a town of jealousy. And I think Jeffrey had put it out there after a successful run in media and movies for many decades that he wasn't ever going to be in the traditional business again and wanted to be in more of a tech-oriented SVOD business. 
And I think some of those things could rub people the wrong way. And at the end of the day, though, they took his money and they made content with him. And I think one of the things that people don't talk about with Quibi is the amount of talent, the amount of programming that was made at the same time for launch is a unique thing. Usually media businesses start with curating other people's content and then doing slight additions to your own and building up a base like Netflix or Amazon have. You commented on how you thought that a lot of the programming was good. Why do you think none of its shows really got any virality or became water cooler conversation? A couple of things. I mean, I did think that they did a remarkable job on a lot of the programming. And it's interesting now because there are a lot of the people that I was talking to on Twitter in general or my following who clearly had not watched anything and are now coming back and saying, you know, this is pretty good. I think a couple of reasons. One was it's a subscription program to begin with, though it was free. You weren't able to sample the content without signing up. There was no clipping or share ability. Those were things that I think Quibi should have taken a chance on. I certainly don't look to the agented artist community to understand how distribution works on the internet. And I think it was a rights issue at first. There was no airplay to begin with. And we're talking about a launch that happened during COVID. And I think that was one of the major issues for Quibi down the road, which is no one was sitting home saying to themselves that they don't have enough to watch during COVID. In fact, you were able to catch up on a lot of things. So to add another service into that, with new programs that have no pedigree or no background, like The Sopranos of the Wire and HBO Max, it was a tough go for them. And I think those things played into it. I will tell you that some of the shows, you know, if you liked Dave on Hulu, you would like Dummy on Quibi. If you like 30 for 30 on ESPN Plus or ESPN, you really would have loved Blackballed about Donald Sterling and the Clippers. And there were more shows like that. Coming from MTV, they redid Punk as a seven-minute show, and it made you think it never needed to be 30 minutes. And I think finally the mistake was they did brand marketing instead of content marketing. And they did correct that later in their marketing campaign, but the spots they bought on the Super Bowl and other things were about branding the service, not showing the talent in the shows that were there. I mean, that Super Bowl ad, and I wrote about this this morning, I was in a room with a group of people, none of whom had heard of Quibi before the Super Bowl ad. I think I was the only one. When that ad was over, they all looked at each other and said, what is that? They didn't understand what the product was. You know, Jason, one of the things right now is this question of how much money investors get back. And right now it looks like there's about 20 cents on the dollar, but they could get up to maybe 50 cents on the dollar if Quibi is able to sell the rights to some of these programs to another streamer. Maybe a streamer could stitch them together to make it look more like a 30-minute program than 10-minute programs. Do you think there is going to be a viable market, whether it be Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max? Will someone buy some of these shows, the rights to them? You know, it's interesting. I haven't discussed it with Jeffrey or Meg yet. The deals that Jeffrey did were actually groundbreaking. Jim Toth and others that sort of put together the way that the programming works is that a lot of the rights do revert back to the creators years later. So they have a window that in particular is worth of something. I actually don't think that the move would be to stitch those things together into a 30-minute program, though you could, or into a movie, so to speak, because I think one of the innovations or one of the things that I think Quibi has proved is that you can make quality programming in shorter amounts in terms of time span and make it into a good narrative. And the history of television, the reason shows are 30 minutes or an hour really had to do with advertising. It had to do with the mechanical arms that used to bring the advertising in and had to do with the length of how much money you wanted to make. In this case, I think that if there's any success from the failure of Quibi, it may be that you see more of these services do more short form programming. And Netflix has already done this with things like Vox Explained and some other things. 
I think that there is value in the catalog. But on top of that, there's going to be a shortage probably. I mean, COVID shut down production. So it'd be interesting to see whether someone picks up Quibi. The obvious goal would be if a telco has another service that is short form, they'd pick it up. But most of those have shut down. I think Jeffrey, from what I understand, wants to return that cash back to the investors. And then on top of that, there'll be something if there is value in the catalog to go back to them. And I think it was a brave decision. You know, I've seen worse decisions made out of ego. Jason, final question for you is about Jeffrey Katzenberg. Was this his final act as Hollywood mogul? I mean, I don't think he thinks about mogul too much, but there's no universe in the Marvel universe and otherwise where Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't work. He's just got energy. You know, I think he'll learn some lessons about, you know, sort of the momentum and the way that the press has received it or not, maybe taking more advice over hope. These situations that happened were not things that Jeffrey didn't think about. I just think that there was a confluence of events. I don't think COVID was the reason that it didn't win or didn't succeed, but it certainly did not help. Jason, thank you so much for joining. Welcome back. What we'll be watching tonight is the second and final debate between President Trump and former Vice President Biden. A few things we know ahead of time. First, the moderator will be NBC News's Kristen Welker. Second, when a candidate is giving his two-minute reply, the other candidate's mic will be muted. And third, President Trump's advisors have told him to cut down on the interruptions, try to be more likable, maybe tell a few jokes. That last part was reporting from over the weekend by Axios's Elena Treen. So we wanted to ask Elena if we should expect that Trump will take that advice and also if tonight's debate is likely to change any voter minds. I do think that the president, the September debate was deeply unpopular and he knows that and his advisors know that and they're telling him that. And so more so than September, they're expecting him to heed some of their advice, definitely with being less aggressive toward Biden. And they're hoping the microphones being cut off at certain points might help as well. I do think that he'll try harder to articulate better and not have it be a chaotic back and forth. But you really don't know if something comes up and the president thinks that he's being unfairly maligned by the former vice president. I think all bets are off. I think that, sure, there might be some voters around the country who might, you know, watch tonight's debate and potentially be persuaded, but they are very few and far between, by and large, especially at the time of this debate where, what, 12 days away from the election, many people have already voted. Most people have already made up their minds about who they will vote for. So the debate really isn't going to move the needle that much. We're also continuing to watch stimulus negotiations. The latest is some talk from Nancy Pelosi about being close to an agreement. But remember, that's just an agreement with the White House, not with the Republican-led Senate, which remains intransigent. And finally, we are watching the early stock performance of McAfee, the antivirus software maker that last night raised $740 million in its IPO. What's particularly interesting here is the fraught relationship between McAfee and its own name. On the one hand, its IPO prospectus lists brand recognition as its top competitive strength. On the other hand, founder John McAfee, who the company's named for, recently made headlines after being arrested for tax evasion and firearms violations. McAfee, who also at one point was both a U.S. presidential candidate and a person of interest in a murder, no longer has any involvement with the company. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven, and Alex Sugiyara, have a great national nut day. 
and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.